Welcome to UO Today. I'm Paul Peppis, Director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Robin Morris Collin, the Norma Paulus Professor of Law at Willamette University's College of Law. Morris, the first US law professor to teach sustainability courses in a US law school, currently teaches global sustainability. Prior to her tenure at Willamette University, she was a professor at the University of Oregon's law school from 1993 to 2003. While at the U of O, she co-founded the Coalition Against Environmental Racism's Environmental Justice Conference and the Sustainable Business Symposium, both of which continue into their second decade. She served as the founding chair of the legislatively created Oregon Environmental Justice Task Force. Recently, she was appointed to Oregon Governor Kate Brown's Racial Justice Council, and she serves as the co-lead on the state's Environment and Equity Committee. She has been awarded the Oregon Woman of Achievement Award, the David Brower Lifetime Achievement Award from the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference, the Leadership in Sustainability Award from the Oregon State Bar, the Campus Compact Faculty Award for Civic Engagement and Sustainability, and the National Environmental Justice Achievement Award from the Environmental Protection Agency for her work with the Oregon Environmental Justice Task Force. On December 8th, 2020, Colin, Morris Collin will give a virtual lecture, The Geography of Injustice and the Ecology of Reparations as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020-2021 Colin Rowe O'Fallon Memorial Lecturer. Her talk is part of this year's Climate Justice Series. Thanks, Robin, for coming on the show. Thank you. So let's, uh, let's go back and um, start with the question of what led to your interest in law, sustainability, and environmental justice? Originally, I came to uh, sustainability while I was uh, actually already teaching law school. And I saw in the early 90s, all of this incipient writing around Earth Day about sustainability. And I wondered, well, what? might law and policy have to do with all of this? And sure enough, it pulled me into a discussion of public policy, not so much law, but international law and public policy. And once I was there, I found uh, that part of what was being discussed internationally was equity. And it didn't, translate fully when the conversation uh, was raised in the US. And it was clear to me that part of what we didn't get in this country was equity. And so once I perceived that gap in the discourse, uh, I found my voice. That was where I felt that I could contribute something to this important e evolving discussion that combines environment, that combines economics, that combines equity. And the equity piece of it, when I finally got my sights narrowed in and focused, was already being done in terms of environmental justice. It was simply a question of why sustainability people, environmental people were not talking to environmental justice people. And so that has become part of the lift, part of the work 
um, to make sure that these constituencies, these people are speaking together, they should be speaking together. So tell us a little bit more about that. So first of all, let's, let's uh, start with these key terms. So how do you define environmental justice and how do you define sustainability? Let's start there. Well, sustainability is classically defined in terms of three domains. Uh, you have environment, economics, and equity. And I think those domains are overlapping, they're interlocking, they're complex, but that's a pretty good way to begin to conceptualize sustainability. Simply this idea, unless those three domains are in alignment, we're hurting. We're hurting nature, we're hurting ourselves, we're hurting our economy, but alignment of those three domains is what I'm talking about in terms of sustainability. Environmental justice came from a different historical background and that was the uh, problem that was richly documented about the disproportionate adverse effects that were being dumped into black communities, indigenous communities, communities of color. And when I talk about environmental justice as opposed to injustice, what I'm talking about is a kind of equity, changed outcomes. When I say equity, what I mean is changed outcomes so that we are no longer using any particular community as a dumping ground for waste and pollution and instead we can reconnect and restore all of that. So you mentioned uh, that early in your career, these two uh, groups of activists, on the one hand, the sustainability people, and on the other hand, the environmental justice people, they weren't talking to each other. They weren't in the same room with each other. So tell us why it's so important that they should be together, that they should, that these concepts and these, these activists need to be working together. Because it's one earth. You know, because we share land, we share water, we share air, and there is a very difficult but implicit mental model that comes out of a long history of segregation, subordination, that says somehow we can take care of all of the rest of it and not pay attention to what we are doing to part of it. You know, um, you mentioned sustainable business, and one of my uh, one of my mentors is Paul Hawken. Uh, Paul Hawken early on came to University of Oregon to be part of our initial sustainable business symposium. At any rate, one thing that Paul occasionally mentions is this idea uh, of optimizing parts and pessimizing a system. Well, I think one of the things that sustainability folk, environmental folk don't get about equity and environmental justice is that you cannot pessimize our communities of Black people, Indigenous people. You cannot subordinate those communities and expect the rest of it to be somehow optimized. We must recognize our connection. And one of the great things, forgive me for this, one of the great things about 2020 
is the fact that it has ripped the scab off of wounds. It has exposed a level of truth in nature and among people that we have been tempted to deny. Um, yeah, I, I pause for a moment and just think back to President Obama. And I remember during President Obama's tenure, people saying, oh, it's all post-racial now. We're, we're done with racism. No, we're not. We never were. But now, thanks to 2020, nobody's saying that anymore. So I thank you, 2020. <laughs> so you mentioned briefly in response to my last question, the, the importance of history. Tell us a little bit more about why for grounding history in efforts of sustainability and environmental justice is so important. Yeah. I'm scratching my head because I'm trying to remember this quote and perhaps you can help me. Somebody said history isn't even over yet. Was that? Well, Sorry that's my point. <laughs> Somebody will help us. Somebody will chime in and tell us that history isn't even over yet. We're still living with consequences. And I was a history major. I realized that history is always contested. But the fact is, what remains of our history is evidence. And I have deep respect for evidence, the things that we can see, hear, taste, smell, touch. And by the way, when I'm not teaching sustainability, law schools pay me to teach things like evidence and professional responsibility. So that's actually uh, three quarters of what I teach. But history is important here as evidence. And I think that numerous scholarships are exploring the connection between systems today as they exist today and that historical evidence. So I can I can think of a couple that I think are rich and, and really worth reading. For example, The Color of Law by Richard Rothstein. Um, that is an historically based research effort, but it's to explain how we got to have such a segregated society. And it wasn't just custom or uh, people's natural inclinations. There is a history to that and the consequences are today. And the same, the same thing with the environment, the same thing with the pandemic, with climate change. There's a history to these things. And in order to change, I think we need to understand what part that history plays in the system. So that's sort of where I'm, where I'm at right now in terms of this particular talk, which I'm so looking forward to. But we've arrived at a time of transition, right? We've arrived at a time where we're doing triage, but we know that triage is temporary and we've got to figure out what we're going to do next. And in figuring out what we do next, I think it is absolutely important to understand the history that has now been internalized. If we don't recognize how we have internalized that history, we need to do nothing more and those same systems will simply recreate themselves again. That's what I'm talking about in terms of the ecology of oppression. 
So just for your reference, the quotation is not history, it's it's the past. And William Faulkner said, the past yeah, okay. is not, it's not even past. No, but, thank you so much. Isn't it good? That's worth remembering. <laughs> so um, in addition to the importance of history, you also stress the importance of culture in efforts mm. to uh, combat environmental racism and achieve sustainability. Tell us why culture is so important. Culture in my mind, and as I use it, culture is this vast inherited network of instructions, commands, uh, desires, plans, strategies, thinking that we do without mindfully thinking about it. And that makes culture hugely powerful. So I believe that culture needs to be examined intentionally and deliberately in order to change. If we don't examine our culture, we won't change it because again, it's this vast repertoire that we internalize with mother's milk. We don't even know that we've got all that going on. Now I know there are other ways and other disciplines to talk about that. For example, implicit bias and all of these other um, ways of conceptualizing it. But I think the most powerful articulation of this idea is culture. And the idea that we are responsible we are agents of culture and that we need to think about what we're doing intentionally. So you have argued that um, environmental justice, to achieve environmental justice and true sustainability requires radical inclusion. How would you define that term and why is it necessary? Radical inclusion I've written about in a recent article in the Sustainability Journal. And uh, briefly, it is this. I am arguing for the inclusion of all stakeholders, not just human ones, right? So that's something that we can do. It's not uh, impossible to begin to include in our thinking non-human stakeholders. We need to include people who cannot and do not speak for themselves. So often we overlook children. They need to be there. Ask the kids who brought that lawsuit uh, that U of O has played such an important part in. They need to be there. They are absolutely able to participate. We need to include all sorts of stakeholders, regardless of language, regardless of their technical expertise, and that's tough, but not impossible. It's tough because a digital divide is real, but not impossible. And the fact is that when we reach for these other people, what we find is that we all benefit. So for example, just take a digital divide issue. Even over in rural Oregon, it's tough to include people because broadband access is so crummy over there. We need to do better, especially now we're finding that in terms of education, we have to be able to provide education to kids on that side. And so much of that is broadband delivered now, see Zoom. Um, so part of what I'm stressing here about inclusion is everybody 
everything that lives together needs to have a voice in that, no matter how difficult that actually might be. Um, the other part of inclusion uh, that is radical. I believe that same set of stakeholders needs to be included in every decision from conceptualizing a project through to figuring out the metrics of success. They need to be present, they need to be asked, and they need to be accounted to at every single stage. And when we don't do that, we get wonderfully intentioned projects that don't go anywhere, that don't leave the community empowered. So that's a hint about what I mean in terms of radical inclusion. And it's going to require investment in community capacity building. So you've begun to get to my next question. So if if this vision of radical inclusion is implemented uh, in environmental injustice and uh, and achieving sustainability, how do we evaluate the success of sustainability projects that are radically inclusive? Tell us a little. Uh, this question of metrics can be a thorny question. And I respect the idea that we need to measure what we're doing. That being said, too often metrics become exclusionary, profoundly opposite of what I'm talking about in terms of radical inclusion. Therefore, I think in determining the metrics of success, one of the important process steps is again, radical inclusion. Ask the people who live with the solution how you're doing. That kind of inclusion in building a metric, in refining and revising a metric, that means we are both measuring success and being accountable to the people that we purport to help. We've got to be more transparent. We've got to be more accountable. We've got to be more open, especially when it comes to metrics. So you were the founding chair of the Oregon Environmental Task Force. Tell us what its mission is and what it's accomplished. The Oregon Environmental Justice Task Force was created about 11 years ago. Uh, and it was created under uh, Governor Ted Kulangowski. Before that, there had been a, a volunteer group that was operating under uh, the previous governors, actually all the way back to Governor Barbara Roberts. The mission has been to articulate environmental issues throughout Oregon and all the areas of Oregon. The thinking was that the legislature recognized, we don't know what's happening. There isn't enough representation in our body, our legislature, to really know what some of these issues are, who's raising them, what they mean to us. And so I'm very happy to say that the governors all the way from Barbara Roberts to Kate uh, Brown have supported this idea of trying to find out what environmental justice issues there are and where they are and what the dynamics of a solution could possibly be. So this was initially an effort to lift voices to raise the stories and narratives that were simply not being heard, not being told, not being communicated. It's become more than that though. I'm very proud of what this group has accomplished after 11 years.
Tell us about uh, the task force report on environmental justice best practices for Oregon's natural resource agency. Tell us about that document and why it's important. That document is part of the lasting contributions of the EJ task force. It's often called EJTF. That uh, document that you refer to is a how-to manual for outreach to the public, part of this idea of radical inclusion. And I'm really proud of Oregon's natural resource agencies. They were the first in the nation to do something like this. You know, it, it, I'm, I share the frustration of many Oregonians when you see people in California and you see people in Maryland taking credit for all these firsts. We were there 11 years ago. We did it way before they did. So I'm really proud of this. And this is a handbook that the agencies put together with our leadership, the Environmental Justice Task Force leadership, on how to become more inclusive. Now, are we there yet? No, it's a process. It's always being revised. But I will say that all of the agencies are now conversant with what environmental justice means procedurally, what it might mean analytically, how to go about constructing a better, not perfect, but a better public participation process. And they're doing it. It's a very impressive document. Uh, I, I would urge our viewers to read it. It's, it's definitely worth reading. Yeah. So you had the opportunity to contribute to uh, this quite uh, amazing book, Moral Ground, Ethical Action that. for a Planet in Peril with some extremely distinguished co-authors. It's edited by Kathleen Dean Moore at OSU and Michael Nelson. Tell us what you wrote about in that volume. Well, as you say, these were amazing people to be included with. And you'll find my essay right after Teach Not Han, which lets you know I don't know how I got into that group, but uh, you know this is this was really, really one of my proudest moments. What I wrote about was redemption. In a word, redemption. We have, in a moral sense, committed so many wrongs, and I understand now the depths of despair of a wrongdoer. So often, you know, we think of ourselves as victims and we victims must be in the right and everybody else is wrong. But, you know, we need to offer ourselves a moment to recognize that we have done wrong. And it's, it, 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 it's no minor thing. We've done some terrible, terrible things. And most of the time, it's not that we wanted to do wrong. I don't think many people, a few perhaps, but not many people actually get up in the morning and want to kill things. They don't. But we end up in a lifestyle, in a culture that sends these murderous messages. So my piece is offering both a recognition of wrongdoing and the idea of redeeming ourselves and how we can do that. It's not that you can ever go back and make things the way they would have been. That is not part of what is possible. But this idea of redemption is also what I've been working on for our speech coming up. How do we work with what we have right now, right where we are? We might not wanna be where we are. Certainly 2020, I will be happy in many respects to see in the rear view mirror. But 
having said that, this is where we are. And I don't believe there's any other ethical place from which we can make any moves except stop the denial and let's put our feet on the ground respectfully and take our knees off the necks of nature and people. That's what I wrote about. So I, um, this next question I think follows from what you've just said. So how can we find common ground on environmental issues in a moment of such profound polarization in the United States? Uh, I mean, I guess I'm asking you about 2020, mm-hmm. 2021. Common ground. Yeah, we're standing on it. And yeah, nature doesn't lie. Humans are really good at lying. I. I I sometimes think that we are the species that has perfected the art of the lie, but nature doesn't lie. And when you ask about common ground, I believe it's important that we take our stand on what we see in nature, that we give an honest account of ourselves based on what we can see in nature. Now, the polarization, you know, the, this is such an awkward interregnum that we're in, it, but it, again, it's just a wonderful opportunity for us to deal with it and not deny it and not shovel it under some rug. I understand why people are suspicious. We have been lied to. We've been lied to by big tobacco. We've been lied to by sugar. We've been lied to, we've been used, we've been abused. All of that is true. And I understand a big swath of our society that has decided, okay, I'm not gonna believe anything scientists say because they were saying to me, I'm not gonna believe anything that academics say because you guys are just paid. And you know, it, I don't believe anything, I'm suspicious of everything. And they turn uncritically to an absolutely unvetted source uh, like, conspiracy theories. I'm not putting that down. I'm saying I understand that. But what to do about it is, I think, to regroup locally, to put our feet on the ground honestly with our neighbors, with our friends, to talk about the things that we see and we share and we live on common ground. And from those kinds of relationships, we can restore the earth and we can redeem ourselves. I believe that. Oregon is full of people like that. The moment we drop the politics and you can talk to people about the land they live on, the trees that they have, the water that they share, the piece of the river that they tend, all of a sudden we're on slightly different ground. That's where I'm putting my faith locally. Um, I'm thinking also of another poem by William Stafford, Thinking for Berkey. He says, this is again, not an exact quote, but justice will require a million intricate steps. And every time I read that million intricate steps, I think, oh my gosh, how are we gonna get there? And the answer is to be found in ecology. A million intricate steps happen when we have the same shared mental model. 
We don't have to have an instruction book. We don't have to have police on every corner. Negative all of that, that's done. We know it doesn't work. But what we do have to share is an image. And then those million intricate local steps can happen. So we're coming to the end of our time. I think this will be my last question. You were a, a professor of law at the University of Oregon from 1993 to 2003. Can you tell us a little bit about your tenure at the University of Oregon? I learned far more from my students at U of O than I learned from any other group that I've ever had the privilege of teaching. Were they difficult? Oh my, yes. <laughs> were they challenging? I had never been challenged the way they challenged me. Was it always happy and bright? No. No, but together we taught one another and I learned a tremendous amount from them. So among the awards that I've received and thank you much for your introduction, but the Broward Award from the Public Interest Environmental Law Conference, that means a lot to me. And I often think of those students and our struggles together, which together have made us much stronger and much better. Um, I, I recall fondly too, I just wanna shout out to the Journal of Environmental Law and Litigation. They published a piece of mine, uh, the role of communities in environmental decision-making. And that piece has been reprinted. It's become kind of a minor cult classic. Um, and so again, my time there, I think, was rich uh, and full, and uh, I remember my students very, very fondly. Well, thank you, Robin, for sharing your time with us today. It's been wonderful speaking with you, and we're looking forward to your lecture in a couple of weeks. Thank you so much. I've been speaking with Robin Morris Collin, the Norma Paulus Professor of Law at Willamette University's College of Law. On December 8th, 2020, uh, Morris Collin will give a virtual lecture, The Geography of Injustice and the Ecology of Reparations, as the Oregon Humanities Center's 2020-2021 Collin Rowe O'Fallon Memorial Lecturer. Her talk is part of this year's Climate Justice Series. Thanks so much for watching. Thank you.